Hello everyone. Welcome to Sec Tools podcast by Infosec Campus. I'm your host of the show, Sanup Thomas. This is our 39th episode and we have a special guest, Philip Humayu with us from Crowdsec. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm delighted to discuss with our audience and, and you obviously. Awesome. I know about Crowdsec from obviously um there are discussions going on online about um how this project is actually picked up. it formed like a more production ready software and then i also noticed that you had uh, uh, a presentation in blackhead arsenal last week yeah um, yeah absolutely yeah in asia yeah yeah um and unfortunately i couldn't catch up with the uh, blackhead asia this year but i as soon as i just saw the, uh, the 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 project was listed out there and you had a presentations i reached out to you and then i wanted to know more about you and uh, of course about the project itself so let's start with about you like how did you get into infosec or tech in general what was your journey yeah well I, when i was 16 uh, i kind of i had a computer very early on i was 10 years old and by then it was very early it was in 1985 mm-hmm. and uh, i started to learn my english and learn my trade on computers and you know coding demo stuff uh, we had a demo scene by then where you animate the sprites and make them do uh, funny stuff And then I was like, okay, well, I could do this or eventually what I liked, which is uh, flying uh, planes. <laughs> But um, so I, I went for, uh, for definitely for the engineering part. So I made EPITA, which is a school in France, engineering school. And I graduated in uh, systems and security. And quickly after I decided to go for pen test, I was already very, very interested and involved in, in offensive security. Um, so really, uh, really my, my crush early on. And uh, with the years passing by and, you know, the, uh, you, you don't stay really long on top of this game. I mean, as a Pentester Red Team, um, you can do it until like 30, max 35, because after you have a girlfriend, life, kids and stuff happens, you know, and uh, you cannot dedicate uh, yourself 100% constantly to R&D. So I switched to business and I switched to e-commerce a bit and to defensive security, uh, defending e-commerce websites. uh but i really loved my uh, roughly a decade in the pen testing area so yeah that was that was the start of it yeah i like the idea like you you wanted to switch to defensive side of security which is uh, i don't know if it's like an experience actually teach you to move to that direction because in the beginning uh, everybody wants to do offense uh, because it's more fun to do but actually yeah. when you progress in of doing offense stuff then you realize that actually defense is more fun to do Yeah, there is a lot. Of, there's a lot to say here. So, first of all, offensive security requires you to be constantly on the edge of the new stuff. Uh, what you know, constantly learning absolutely everything, and also testing stuff, or doing R&D on your own. You know, minting your tools and stuff. So it's extremely exigent time-wise, um, and even if it's rewarding. Now, the defensive security. On the other hand, it's something that you plan. You can organize. You have the time ahead of you. Okay, sometimes you have to react fast, but mostly you have time to make the architecture. And the other thing is somehow, somewhat, yeah, it's more complicated to do defense and offense. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, it became very complicated for red team pentesters nowadays to yeah. breach systems and all. But our success rate by then, you know, a decade ago was 99.9%. We mostly never failed, you know. We were always breaching in a way or another. So... Yeah, I needed another challenge. And defending, where you have to defend 99.9% constantly, is also very challenging. So, yeah, I think it it was part of the attraction I had for this field. 
Excellent. Yeah, I think that that's what my uh, my next question's coming to because you know when you actually started doing pen test, uh, you pretty much own everything uh, by the end of the assessment. Um you you do get um findings and even though the application was tested multiple times regularly in the past years, you still get that issue. And then you decided that okay, let me move to the next side and then start protecting from it and build an IPS yeah. around it. What was the crazy idea behind it? Yeah, it's not so easy. I mean, and when you're a bank and uh, in the end, at the end of the test, you, you've got, you know, this famous infinite money because you reach the Swift router or you can generate credit card numbers, uh, but, you know, as many as you want. You're super happy. Honestly, this is a crazy feeling. I loved it. And I have super funny uh, stories around, you know, good pen testing that turned wrong or, or very funny acts. But in the end, you defeated an army of guys that work to build something. You know, most of it is like this credit card system, this Swift router, this whatever bank or whatever media or others, they worked their asses off to, to bring something, to build something. And I feel like I'm my kid three years old and I just want to destroy the tower, you know, and only when you're four or six years old, do you start to build the tower itself and find it more interesting than destroying it. So I wouldn't compare it one to one, but that's something of it. When you finally switch to the other side, you're like, okay, guys, what, what, how could we on earth get to the Swift router? What happened? Like, well, we need to connect this flux and that flux. So I cannot possibly filter that one. It's impossible. It's coming from, you know, this part of the bank or that part of our colleagues or, or other banks. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So that's a complicated problem. It's not because you're dumb. It's not because you forgot something. It's because you're facing a real issue uh, a reproductive issue and business will always overtake over security, you know? And once you realize that you are left with a paradigm that is very interesting. How do you uh, both secure and leave the business, you know, uh, running? And that's a, uh, that's a very interesting challenge. Now coming to the CrowdSec project, you and your team decided to build an IPS of your own because of whatever the reasons that you had uh, uh, in the background of it. What was uh, your motivation? And I want to know your story about like how you derived uh, to a conclusion that, okay, we need to just start creating an IPS with XYZ options. Um, so tell me your story about CrowdSec. Yeah, sure. Well, back in 2014, I still had this company and with my CTO, we're on the moment where we switched to this defensive stance and we were like, Okay, let's have this high security environment. And we're not speaking here about like having a firewall and, you know, multi-factor authentication. We spoke about really having like a fortress. And we're like, okay, let's divide the fortress. How would we do it, you know, for public hosting and specifically e-commerce? So we were like, we have to have a firewall that would be dynamic and that would be instructed to block IPs based on behavior we find in the logs, in the kernel uh, packs or GSEC, uh, sent by fail to ban, uh, based on some uh, public sources, uh, and you know, aggregate all of this. And we created our own WAF as well, which is called Naxi, um, to block uh, things. And once we had all of this knowledge, we could dynamically pilot our file. And we were happy about it. We're like, okay, that works. And until that day where we had this very large e-commerce outlet called uh, Interspore. In Europe, it's really a massive brand. And the guy, it was during the Olympics. And the guys were facing an attack. And thank God, they were on this high security hosting environment. And we started to see, like, the guy was doing HTTP scan. And we started to see, like, 3,000 IPs attacking, you know, trying to spread the, the load of the uh, HTTP scan. 
and we blocked all the IPs. And then 4,000 came, we blocked them, 5,000 came, we blocked them, 6,000 came, we blocked them. And we're like, okay, the guy didn't even reach like 1% of his Acunetix scanner, whatever he was using. And uh, he has no more IPs, basically. Mm-hmm. So he stopped, he, he, he just stopped and you know went to some, something else. And the thing is, we realized then that we were holding something, like dynamically blocking those IPs we shortened uh, the pool of resources that the attacker could uh, uh, dedicate to this attack. So we were like, okay, who do we share this information with? Our colleagues, our competitors, other people around the place. Can we just make like kind of a wall of shame stuff and publish it online? And all of this, you know, ended up being more or less like we are not known for that and we don't have the authorization or legal framework for that. So we cannot really broadcast those, those information even though they are valuable. We're like, okay, we have to find a way to, to broadcast when we know, and we have to find a way to organize this that, that it's lighter because our system was super heavy. Like it took two months to put the client in production. So we came up with the idea of, you know, iterating both fail to ban, reinventing fail to ban somehow in a faster way with uh, deeper scenarios and more dimensions and to share the signals that a behavior engine would block. And this was the inception of CrowdSec. Well, if it's a endpoint issues that as an IOC is that being now started maybe sharing or not just now, but it's been a few years that's being shared between different vendors and whatnots, and then they can they can utilize those IOCs to start blocking the endpoints, but nothing on the perimeters, nothing nothing on the on the perimeter level, right? Actually, the, the point would be uh, if you just do behavior, you're missing one dimension, which is reputation. And if you just do reputation, you're missing the behavior that led to this reputation. Yeah. Because basically, let's take a parallel with the real life. If you see someone uh, at the entrance of a club, right, and the guy is drunk, it's a behavior. You know he's drunk, it's a behavior, and you will probably not let him in the club because he's drunk already. Uh, but if you see the same guy in the, in the queue, he's not drunk but you heard that all the the previous weeks he made all the bar in town and was drunk constantly what do you know behavior wise is fine but reputation wise is dangerous you will not let him in either and it's exactly what we're doing we are analyzing the behaviors and they can be very convoluted and we stick a behavior to an ip and if enough people report this ip as having this behavior it becomes a reputation and then it's integrated in a block list so the agent on the one end does the behavior. This is the IDS. We have a second component, which is the IPS that remedy the threats, that deal with the threat. And it's fed both by the behavior as seen in your logs and by the reputation as seen at the scale of our network, which is now tens of thousands of machines. And both the IDS and IPS, both pieces are open source and the support is the business side of it? Yeah, they are all open source. So the, the agent, the IDS, is coded in Golang, so mm-hmm. it's super light. It, it's easy to containerize, and they already have all the ELMs and everything you do to do your Kubernetes magic, uh, or, or run it on a classical Debian or on a regular VM or bare metal. So it's super light uh, resource-wise. It takes tens of megabytes of RAM or hundreds of megabytes of RAM if you have a, having a classical use. Uh, obviously, if you pass millions of lines of logs, expect to use gigs, but that's pretty logical. Um, and then the second component is in different languages. So it's open source MIT license and the, the IPS is also open source MIT license. But the IPS, they come in several flavors. You can have like 20 different of them. Why is that? Because 
you don't want to remedy the problem in the same way, depending on your business. Say you're an e-commerce company and you want to block people that are doing bot scalping. Okay, we can find the behavior of a bot scalper and we can block him, but maybe you don't want to just drop it in your firewall. That would be too harsh and you think you may lose other baskets, carts, you know, maybe transactions and it's scary for you. So when that you will, what you will do then is just toss a capture and that will slow down uh, this boat attack. If the guy wants to buy a PlayStation 5 and resell it on eBay, he has to go through the manual uh, way, right? So that's a way for the e-commerce guys to deal with the problem. Now, if you're running a mail server farm, you don't give a damn about blocking half of the internet because you've done that for the last uh, 10 or 20 years. So blocking ranges of IP addresses is extremely fine by you. So you will just drop them at the firewall level. Maybe you want to deal with it at the WordPress level, at a very high logical level, like layer seven thing, or maybe you want to drop it at the layer three thing, not to hear the noise of the internet. It's up to you. That's why some of them are Lua script. Some of them are, are in C. Some of them are in Python. Some of them are in PHP, just to accommodate to whatever you're trying to do. And um, this is also fully open source. And the last piece is what we call the consensus. And the consensus is the algorithm that takes a decision to block an IP in the whole network. Um, what is lately a uh, concern to the community, but we've been very clear and transparent about that, is that the consensus is not yet open source. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't want to open source it. Actually, we want to open source it. But, you know, in modern infrastructure, we do code as infrastructure or infrastructure as code, to be more precise. So it's extremely tricky to separate the code from the infrastructure and it would be complicated as such to reuse it in a different context. So uh, we need to do work on how to publish it properly in open source and reach a certain quality grade before we open source that part. But everything else is open source and all the signals that you send to us are redistributed and the committee is redistributed signals to you for free as well. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I actually liked is like, there's something like code ethics, right? Code ethics as in, the idea is like when you code something or when you make it as a project something now, you should also consider the abuse cases of it because the world is going crazy in one way and, and that, that's where the most, most of the noises are. Uh, people who are actually utilizing the tools for the good purposes will continue ut utilizing it as a good purpose. But that small chunk of people, we need to basically make an extra consciousness to protect how we make the code and how we make the, the, the functionalities in the code itself, right? For example, the... The idea of you processing the metadata itself is uh, under the GDPR compliant. Was that a conscious decision from the beginning or was there like a gradual uh, migration to maybe compliant into uh, make sh making sure that there is no um, sensitive informations are, are shared? No, it was by design and from day one. So the first reason is we are a European-based company. Mm -hmm. So we have to respect GDPR. It's not an option. We do have to. <laughs> okay. uh, but also, uh, we are really uh, open source-minded uh, uh, people. So we wanted to take the minimum information we need to, to make our treatment uh, efficient and relevant. So uh, well, that is slightly more complicated than this, but it narrows down to the IP address, the timestamp, and the scenario. And with this were uh, at ease enough to tell um, what the IP is trying to do, when, where, and how. Mm -hmm. um, so that's enough for us to, to do this. And in order not to keep the information for too long, because it's the second dimension of the GDPR. So you collect the least possible amount of data and you keep them for the least amount of time. 
which mm -hmm. is important. So we keep it for six months instead of a year that we are entitled to. And uh, after six months, we blur the, the range, the IP in a range. Like say, if it's an IPv4 address, like ABCD, we do ABC.0 slash 24. Okay. We don't want to know more about this. We don't have an IP anymore. We have a, a range. Mm -hmm. And we don't say like it's 12. It was at 12, 34, 20 seconds. We say it was between 12 and 1 p.m. Mm -hmm. And that way, with blurring the time dimension and the IP dimension, we cannot pinpoint one person. And this is what is considered a personal data yeah. uh, in GDPR framework. So yeah, it was by design and first from the first day onward. And on the other part of your question or your thinking, a tool can always be used against uh, uh, the, the righteous use that it's meant to have. And here we have the same problem. One can definitely decide to use CrowdSec to in, uh, infect, uh, to poison the consensus and send IP addresses in the block list which would not which should not be there actually so the way we deal with that is through the consensus through the number so everybody is an entity it's not because like microsoft has a million machine that it has a million votes mm -hmm. actually microsoft is one entity has one vote google has one vote i have one vote you have one vote so it's not about the weight you have or the number of ip you have it's about how faithful you were how accurate you were for how long because we don't trust you before six months and we have to have 150 currently entities to vote against an IP constantly mm -hmm. to make it in the block list. And when it's going below this threshold, the IP is removed from the block list. So that way we avoid being poisoning by wrongly intended people. It's, it's well thought out. It's, it's well designed. One thing that I've noticed from uh, your project page is like you do have a, a CrowdSec ambassador program. Um, how does that work? Yeah, so... <clears throat> As you know, uh, as you understand, the, the strength is in the network. So the larger the network, the more efficient it is. Like when the network grows, we have more signals. Mm -hmm. And if it, if it grows further, we have stronger signals. And if it grows even further one magnitude, we have real-time signals because like anything happening over the internet is instantly seen by someone. So our goal is to make the network grow as fast and as big as possible. That's why it's free and open source so that everyone can use it and partake into the project. Now we need to educate the masses. I cannot tell you enough how hard it is to educate VCs uh, about what we're doing. Yep. They, they feel we are up to something. They see the curve growing fast as hell, but they're like, yeah, but you don't sell yet. Are you sure you can sell something? Like, guys, we have a freaking gold mine. Of course, we will sell something. Wait. So now to the ambassador, the ambassadors are special people that are kind of a head of a, a sub-community like in South America, we have Bionzo, in North America, uh, in Germany, we have Martin and so on and so forth. And those guys, they can carry the colors of the company. They can speak for the company. They are spokesmen. Mm -hmm. They are uh, evangelists. And they go toward their local uh, uh, fellowship and the discuss of the product, how to use it. And uh, we have strong, uh, um, we have an avenir for them. We have a future for them. We want to uh, interest them into the business and we want to make them part of the success of the company. But yeah, they are really key people that are totally able to help you or educate you on the product. Coming to the language choices, was there any specific reasons why you picked up Golang? Absolutely. So one of the uh, most uh, often, uh, uh, one of the things we are told the most is like, why did you do it in Rust? Uh -huh. I have nothing against Rust, guys. Like, really, it's, it's a cool language. It's probably next generation. I'm fine with it. The problem is the following. 
we wanted to have a language that is super fast to execute, super fast uh, um, to, to compile, that is extremely light, that can be going in any kind of environment, Windows, Mac OS, Linux, in a container, um, that can scale to the roof if need be, because we are using our own potion. We're using our own software. So we are running it on containers, on, on AWS and on GCP. So basically, we needed it to be in Golang. Mm -hmm. And also, Rust is cool, but you have more people right now uh, uh, coding in Golang, I think, I mean, I guess. And um, that was a usual, uh, that, that those are the usual reasons yeah. why we decided to develop it in, uh, in Golang. And it will, it will be there like in 20 years from now, because yeah. it's a language used by Google. So if we take for granted that Google is going to be there in 20 years, which is very likely, uh, Golang will still be around in 20 years from now, which is a, a security we need to have. Because if you look at fail to ban for example, this software uh, has done an amazing job for 17 years. Yep. It was coded in Python. So Python by then was a good choice. But now it's too slow to do a, a massive treatment over millions of lines of logs. Otherwise, you're going to kill your service performance-wise. So when we took this decision, we took this decision thinking, okay, if we have the same success as fail to ban one day, people will maybe still use the software in 20 years from now. It still has to be validated and efficient and, uh, and fast, you know? Yeah, totally agree. And also, I think uh, writing in Golang versus in Python will definitely have uh, differences in speed or performance. Um, especially when you're dealing with like a bulk amount of data and, and it really matters. Even like a milliseconds actually matters a lot uh, when the amount of data that you're processing is like really, really huge. It's 60 times faster, actually. I mean, some users of us did uh, uh, benchmarks mm -hmm. between Fail2Ban and CrowdSec and they found out that the processing time is 60 times uh, slower. Well, it's faster, sorry. Mm -hmm. It takes 60 times less time yeah. Uh, to process the data. So it's meaningful for some people and for some not. I mean, if it's your home getaway, you don't care because, you know, it's not getting a lot of traffic. Yep. But if you are like Oprah, the browser, and you're running like uh, things that are swallowing tens of millions of log lines per day, you have definitely a, a, a strong incentive to have something fast. Yeah, exactly. And also, um, most of the IPS uh, or open source based IPS fail to ban, for instance, um, the setup and configurations and seeing the results and visualizing it, um, it's a lot of work. And you really simplified it to a super, super, super yeah. simple way. Uh, and yeah, I, I really like that. We wanted people to have no uh, technical barriers, you know, because yeah. one of the big mistakes we made in cybersecurity up to me is that we made it an elitist thing, you know. It had to be experts doing it. Well, guess what? There are not so many experts in the world uh, able to do cybersecurity. And everyone needs cybersecurity. Yep. So one way of doing this is training more people, but it's going to take a lot of time. Or another way of doing it is providing tools that are super easy to use and install, but are very powerful uh, uh, under the hood and can do the job properly. So this is how we thought about CrowdSec. We wanted it to be a one-liner for most people to install. And, and having great results out of the box. Now, if you want to make convoluted, complicated, super smart setups, you can, obviously. But uh, it's something we will really stick to over time is that we want anyone to be able to install it in just uh, one line of uh, code, you know. Okay, fun stuff. Uh, Philip, this is great discussions and I can absolutely see um, CrowdSec is going to be an amazing project in the future as well and people are going to love it. Uh, that's why, I mean, definitely wanted you on the show and talk about the project's more details. But uh, before we wind up, 
there are definitely uh, more people coming to infosec it's no longer a very close groups anymore as you said uh, cybersecurity is required in every field and i mean there are tons of resources actually coming in and a lot of people do want to contribute to uh, open source um, what's your advice to people who are coming into infosec these days you you probably might have seen generations of people coming to <laughs> infosec yeah, by yeah. now yeah share your thoughts yeah yeah salute you're right there's so many uh, people interested in, in cybersecurity now the thing is before you are you are on the top of the food chain of cybersecurity it's going to take you years i mean literally getting a great pentester or, or architect it will take you a decade before you get there so it's fine but um if you want to start somewhere uh, open source is a great place because you will find a lot of people to help you uh to support you you can try things nobody will you know boo you because you made a mistake it's like okay you failed no problem uh, because you did this maybe try that it will work that way Uh, you can contribute to other projects and bring your brain because you have something to bring at the table it's not only a question of technicality like technically now i'm done i'm i'm past my age to be good at technique anymore but i have a vision and i can see where the problems are and i'm helping my company through this vision you know and sometimes you find unexpected value in people that are not technical at all they explaining you things that are extremely smart and you say okay yeah obviously you're right like one came to my mind lately it's like it's it's not technical it's like now that we have users in pretty much all the industries right like every vertical like media bank insurance cars and stuff we know what ip addresses are aggressive against say for example media mm-hmm. that's interesting because we know this ip is aggressive against media but not against the rest of the world so it's very specialized now what more well maybe this ip is only aggressive during election times oh and it was also aggressive during election time in germany oh and in uk okay so these ips are definitely trying to rig or to do shenanigans with democracy that's interesting and you know it's it's not technical as such yeah. you see what i mean it's just brain power that's all so everybody is welcome it's a fight it's a it's, it's a cyber war that is ongoing now and every good will people will help i'm pretty sure this is a tool to federate this is a tool to help everyone if someone wants to contribute they are more than welcome we are doing a pull request merge request constantly with the community don't hesitate you can create scenarios the language is in yaml to create scenarios it's super easy mm-hmm. here again we could have taken something more convoluted fine grain whatever but everybody understands yaml is damn simple so and it's a goal of it so we decided to go for yaml so that the greatest number can describe a behavior they don't want to see on their systems awesome thanks philip i think this was amazing talking to you and i wish you good luck for the project my pleasure send up anytime Thanks everyone for listening to the podcast. We'll see you in the next episode.